Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll go to Kissimmee to visit the new Osceola County Welcome Center and History Museum. Right now, we have a lot more visitors that come to the Pioneer Village, so we're encouraging them to come visit the Welcome Center and see the new museum. Um, and then all the visitors that just happen to drive by at, the, at this point um, and stop in the visitor center, we're letting them know about the Pioneer Village and the nice hike down to there. A cattle family remembers also raising pigs in South Florida. Hogs were a very important part of the family life because you ate a lot more pork than you did beef. We'll visit the Black Archives Museum in Tallahassee. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Welcome and bienvenue, welcome. Fremde, étranger, stranger. Glücklich zu sein, je suis enchanté. Happy to see you, bleibe, reste, stay. Welcome and bienvenue, welcome. More than 50 million people from around the world visit Central Florida annually. Most, of course, are coming to Disney World and the area's other theme parks. Now, though, Disney's closest neighbor, Kissimmee, is home to the Osceola County Welcome Center and History Museum. Danita Dampier is executive director of the Osceola County Historical Society and explains how this dream became a reality. We've been working on an expansion for the Historical Society for at least five years. The idea of um, creating this center probably came about around three years ago. Um, one of our board members at the time, his name was Bob Mendick, he was works with the county, and he was on our board during a retreat that we were doing and just discussing the expansion and where we were going to expand and how we were going to do it. And um, we always had in mind to um, combine the nature and history together because without the environment the way it was, the history wouldn't have happened the way it did. So um, in bringing that together um, and, and that those discussions, Bob knew that the county was planning a nature center um, to go with the Shingle Creek Regional Park. And that was a partnership between the city of Kissimmee, Osceola County, and South Florida Water Management. Uh, the entire park and so um, they were at the time supposed to do three nature centers and they had already discussed combining that into one big nature center and we discussed at that time putting the historical aspect into that center as well. So creating one center that would have the nature and the history together. Although Kissimmee's 192 corridor is best known for hotels, t-shirt shops, and tourist attractions that are ancillaries to the theme parks, the area has a long and rich history. After Ponce de Leon first came to Florida in 1513, he returned eight years later with plans to start a colony. 
The Calusa Indians forced Ponce to leave, abandoning a herd of Andalusian cattle. Those animals are believed to be the first domesticated cattle in North America. When Hernando de Soto came to southwest Florida in 1539, he also brought herds of cattle with him. As de Soto moved north through the center of the state, it's believed that many of his cows strayed and were left behind. Native Americans in what would become Osceola County domesticated and bred some of the cows. When white settlers arrived in the 1840s, they used those cattle to establish a thriving industry that still exists today. Much of the Osceola County Welcome Center and Museum is dedicated to showing how people have adapted to the area's natural environment. Danita Dampier. You know, a lot of times people use a timeline to kind of go through a museum.、Um, ours, it didn't really work that way.、Um, so, with the ideas, we came up with doing different habitats and telling the history through the habitats. So,、um, when you start, you get on a steamboat and it kind of takes you into the swamp. And so, in the swampland is where we talk about、um, the Native Americans,、uh, the Seminole Indians that lived in the area、um, or passed through the area, as well as the Spanish and the early Spanish history. Um, from there, you move into the Pine Flatwoods, where we talk about the early industry in the county、um, the cattle industry, the turpentine industry,、um, citrus, and sugarcane.、Uh, from there, we kind of have an area that doesn't really fit in a habitat. It kind of was in all the habitats. So that's our transportation area, where you see the back of the steamboat.、Um, there's a railroad depot there. So there's all the, the railroad story about all the different railroads that ran through Osceola County and met in Kissimmee. Um, from there, you go into the oak hammock, and that's where we tell the pioneer life of where the pioneers lived and built their homes and、um, how they interacted with the wildlife there. And、um, from that point, you go into the lakefront area, and that was where the early tourism began. And so there comes in again the welcome center aspect of welcoming the tourists to the county, kind of show them what it was like for the first tourists that came into the county. Danita Dampier says that the Osceola County Welcome Center and History Museum hopes to attract some of Central Florida's 50 million tourists, but the facility is also for local residents to learn more about Florida history. It is, and it was a way for the county to、um, combine all of that into one. So it's A very unique welcome center for the tourists in our area, which Osceola County is very unique anyway. So this just kind of, you know, sets the presence for us.、Um, and then as well, it's a way for the, the county、um, and us to give back to the community. So it's a free museum for、um, all of the locals to come in, visitors alike, to come in for free,、um, learn about the history, learn about the environment, and see where they can go in their county、um, to see these, this wildlife in real life. So. Kind of an introduction to that. Both tourists and locals can enjoy the interactive elements of the displays at the Osceola County Welcome Center and History Museum. Development Director Rachel Pinkert says that kids are given an interactive map as they enter the museum's steamboat area. They move through each of the exhibit areas, and in those areas, they have stamps where they can. Um, stamp the map, and the stamp kind of corresponds to the area. So, for instance, in the swamplands where it talks about the early Spanish、um, settling in and the history there, it has the Spanish gold to bloom to kind of fit the theme. And so,、um, as the kids go through and kind of、um, go through the exhibits, they're able to do that, as well as we have、um, iPads that、um, people can kind of scroll through, and it gives them an idea of some. You know, background pictures and images and stuff that they can go through to enhance that exhibit.、Um, we in the Pine Flatlands, we have the、um, tortoise hole that the kids can kind of climb through, and that's a really fun experience. The kids seem to really enjoy that, as well as、um, some talking characters. So, 
uh, people can press buttons and kind of get a storyline behind some of the characters that we have set up throughout. Um, we have a life-size eagle's nest, which is kind of one of the highlights of the museum where um, kids and, or families can climb up and get their picture taken in it. It's kind of almost the souvenir picture of the museum. So people seem to really enjoy that. The new museum has more than 8,000 square feet to work with. Rachel Pinkert says that part of that space is for rotating or traveling exhibits. Correct. We have a temporary exhibit gallery um, towards the back of the facility. And um, this particular area is going to be used to switch out um, our exhibits quarterly. So every three months, um, we're looking to either um, construct our own exhibit with our curator on staff or um, trying to bring new ones in from throughout the state or the area. Um, and, and we feel like this will give uh, our residents a reason to come back and, and visit us as we're changing it up and making you know new and exciting things happen there. Um, so definitely um, having showcase, you know, kind of p- parties, I guess you could say, to um, welcome that new exhibit in or um, special speakers and stuff like that to, to kind of um, get the word out about the new exhibit in the community. The grand opening of the Osceola County Welcome Center and History Museum featured an exhibit on the many flags of Florida from the Spanish colonial period through the British period and second Spanish period to statehood, the Civil War, and back again. We actually have the Flags Over Florida exhibit, which was um, sponsored by the Florida Humanities Council um, as a mini-grant project that we had. Um, Our board member and um, our curator, as well as our director here, worked together to fabricate that exhibit. Um, We have an original flag um, dating back to the 1870s um, that is one of our our, um, artifacts, and that flag was actually flown on Shingle Creek at at the church there that was built. Um, So we're pretty proud of that piece. And and this exhibit um, allowed us to feature that along with all the other flags that had flown over the state and a little bit about, you know, what at that time it meant for that flag to be flown and history behind it. Another room in the new facility can function as a classroom, lecture hall, or reception area. Rachel Pinkert. Multi-purpose room is what we like to call it because really it can be anything. We're um, able to actually rent that space out to the community. So um, it's a nice asset to the facility and and that we're able to, you know, have that feature and it it brings awareness when people rent the area and, you know, it gives people a reason to come there and then they get to see what we have to offer. Um, But yes, we have um, that area which has an attached prep kitchen, I guess you could call it, with um, a screened-in porch area, which makes it really nice for events, any kind of events. Um, And so that room we use as a classroom, meeting room, boardroom, what have you. (laughs) During the American Civil War, Florida became the primary supplier of beef to the Confederate Army, and the cattle industry boomed. Many Osceola County families still active in the cattle industry today can trace their roots back to men who raised cattle during the Civil War, such as Jack Yates, Henry Overstreet, George W. Bronson, and Isaac Lanier. Danita Dampier explains that for many years, the Osceola County Historical Society has operated a pioneer village and museum, which is adjacent to the new Welcome Center. One of the great things about our new location is you can actually park up on 192 and you can hike down the creek. 
um, through the nature preserve over to our pioneer village, which is within walking distance. So we love the, the proximity of the location. Um, but there we have on about five acres, we have four historic buildings that date back to the late 1800s. Uh, we have the Lanier Cracker House, which was built in 1889, um, and that's set up as a, a residence um, from the time period that would have been, uh, they were cattle, in the cattle industry. Um, and then next door to that, we have the Tyson General Store, which was built in 1887, and that is set up as a general store, would have been in a small community, a rural community in Osceola County, not necessarily in the downtown Kissimmee area that was a little bit more um, hustle bustle, but this would have been in the Narcoosie area or in the Shingle Creek area, so it's very primitive. Um, we also have a citrus packing plant from the 1800s that came from the Narcusi area that's fully um, stocked with all of the equipment that originally was in the building. And we also have a schoolhouse from the 1800s that came from the same property. Danita Dampier says that visitors to the new Osceola County Welcome Center and History Museum are also being encouraged to experience the Pioneer Village. Absolutely, and vice versa. Right now, we have a lot more visitors that come to the Pioneer Village, so we're encouraging them to come visit the Welcome Center and see the new museum. Um, and then all the visitors that just happen to drive by at, the, at this point um, and stop in the visitor center, we're letting them know about the Pioneer Village and the nice hike down to there. The new Osceola County Welcome Center and History Museum is located at 750 North Bass Road in Kissimmee. The Shingle Creek Regional Park connects the new center to the Osceola County Pioneer Village. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit our website at myfloridahistory.org to enjoy a variety of educational resources, shop for great books about Florida history and culture, find out about upcoming events, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and enjoy other benefits of membership in the Florida Historical Society. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Spanish colonial historian Susan Parker, it seems that most people still don't know that residents continued to live in St. Augustine from the time of its founding on September 8, 1565, until today. School books focus on the Spanish explorers, Ponce de Leon, Narvaez, Hernando de Soto, but pretty much slide over the point that St. Augustine was a city. Women and children arrived, as well as men, with Pedro Menendez de Aviles to establish St. Augustine. But with many more men than women, Spanish men soon married women from nearby Indian villages and began their own families. Visitors to St. Augustine today do not see homes, forts, or other remnants of the town's earliest years. Some early forts and other buildings were built too close to the ocean, and the sea ate away the ground on which they stood. Early forts burned. In 1586, English sea captain Francis Drake attacked St. Augustine. Then he burned the buildings. Hurricanes also demolished early buildings. 
St. Augustine had been all or partially rebuilt at least three times before the English settled Jamestown in 1607. Spanish colonial historian Susan Parker. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. The cattle industry was Florida's biggest business for many decades and is still important today. Janie Gould talks with a cattle family in South Florida who also raised pigs. Hogs have always been essential livestock for a family that's been farming and raising cattle for generations. For 70 years, B.D. Mae Thomas, 92, has lived in the same house on her farm near Bassinger. That's a dot on the map in prairie country northwest of Okeechobee. R.E. Thomas, her son, lives just down the road. Hogs were a very important part of the family life because you ate a lot more pork than you did beef. Back then, you didn't waste anything. You, you ate pretty well the whole that gum hog, inside and out, head and all. You had to slaughter your own hog, your own beef, your own chicken. How do you slaughter a hog? I know you have to dip it in boiling water at some point. It was a normal thing for us to do. You know, we was raised that way. We made our own sausage and whatever, bacon. You didn't just run down to Walmart and buy it. What did you do with the pig's head? Well, they made what they call hog head cheese. It was good. It was made from the brains? No, ma'am. The brains, you cooked them with eggs, brains and eggs for breakfast. Did you say brains and eggs? Yes, ma'am, you scrambled them together, and it was, might be the reason I'm so smart today. Brain food, but it was from a pig. Well, the pig's brain, he's pretty smart, you know. Dogs and cats ain't as smart as a pig. Did you uh, consider your pigs pets? Yes, ma'am, until it was time to slaughter them. What was the best part of the pig? Don't tell me it was the brains. Well, I guess the ribs or the pork chops or the ham. Did you, as a general rule, have meat every day, Mrs. Thomas? Yes, ma'am. I hardly ever sat a meal on the table that I didn't have meat of some kind. Might be white bacon, but the meat was there. We rendered our own lard, the fat of the hog, and you just cook it out. And we could store it for a year then. Never did get rancid. You can't do that now. You've modernized, obviously. Do you miss those days? Well, not really. (laughs) They were rough. It's a little too easy on us now. R.E. Thomas has fond memories of Florida's open range. Cattle used to roam freely, which sometimes posed a hazard to traffic when they crossed highways. There were no lock gates. We went all over the woods. We'd either go woods fishing. We had hogs in the woods. They were not wild. They were tame, you know, and you'd go out and mark your pig. You took care of them. A small hog, you could eat it before it spoiled, and the beef, you'd have to try to dry it or cure it. So you made much more use of pigs, and you could eat practically everything, right? Yes, ma'am. You could salt it down and, and cook it and keep it for several days, and it wouldn't spoil. In 1949, the state enacted a law that required ranchers to keep their herds fenced in. The main thing I remember about the fence law, when people fenced their properties up, my grandfather got awful upset because he had a lot of hogs in the woods, and you couldn't go tend your hogs after that. The rancher fenced up their property and locked the gate. Could you bring the pigs into your property, or did they have better foraging in the woods? I guess they did. Yes, ma'am. There's always more in the woods. I mean, you you bring some of them in, but after that, while the hogs in the woods kind of went downhill, and that's the reason we've got all these feral hogs now. They're the same hogs. They're just not being tended, and they went wild. Thomas says the rural way of life that he's always known is changing, and not for the better. Life's too fast is the main thing. Back then it was slow and easy and wasn't as complicated. Now everybody's got to be in a hurry, which you've got to be, I guess, to make it go. It goes against the grain, I guess, for you. 
Well, I kind of got used to it, I guess, because I go in a hurry, too, now. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. The Freedmen's Bank in Tallahassee is now the Black Archives and Museum. Sally Watt takes us there. The white-columned building at this busy Tallahassee intersection just a few blocks from the state's capital is the Union Bank Building. Today, it's the home of Florida A&M University's Black Archives Museum. It houses artifacts that tell the story of the black experience in Florida. There's quite a history here. This building dates back more than 150 years. In 1866, it was the Freedmen Savings and Trust Company. There were 37 Freedmen's Banks in the South after the Civil War. Museum curator Doris Smith. The newly freed black men made deposits on a regular basis, but they were very small deposits. They did not have, you know, big finances. Freed slaves who were paid for their labor for the first time set aside a portion of their money for the future. But the Freedmen's Banks closed after only six years. The all-white Board of Trustees mismanaged the funds. The Freedmen's Bank in Tallahassee had 1,400 accounts when it shut its doors. Some accounts contained just pennies. The average held $48. After the bank closed, the building became home to a long list of retail ventures. Giles Shoe Shop, Gramlin Seed and Feed Store, a ballet school, a gift shop, a dental hygiene office, a Department of State, a restaurant, and I'm probably missing some. In 1971, the city was moving the bank to its historic district when the truck ran up over the curb and broke down right here at this corner. The bank was damaged in the accident. The truck and the bank sat for a year. They had to put a thick chain and a, a band around it to try to hold it together. And it sat right here. The windows, they finally bolted them up, but the pigeons were flying in and out, and tourists would be coming into the city, and they looked over here, and they said, well, what in the world is that? The bank was eventually offloaded here. This was a vacant lot back then, and restored to its original condition. 
here's where the irony comes in, and there's more than just a little of it. Before this was a freedman's bank, before the Civil War, this was a planter's bank, a bank set up exclusively for owners of cotton plantations. Built in 1841 and known as the Union Bank, plantation owners came here to take out loans to keep their plantations running. They borrowed money to buy seeds, supplies, and slaves. They used the slaves they already owned as collateral. Smith reads from a Tallahassee register of slave transactions from about that time period. Stephen was 500, you dropped down to number three. Buck Henry was what, $2,000? So the age and their physical abilities, they were valued at much more. Because some of them were just used like studs to reproduce. Gertrude, $300. So she was probably old and six. Several factors led to the Union Bank's bankruptcy just two years after it opened. Mismanagement was among them. Plantation owners sometimes took turns chairing the board. The Black Archives Museum holds a cross-section of black history and culture in Florida. Writers and educators, places, American Beach and Eatonville, and collections of black memorabilia. Smith says the museum has an excellent KKK exhibit. An original sword, one of their ID cards. This is a prophecy of the Klan. Everybody that comes in just about, they're familiar with the leopard spots, and they want to read that book. They're also drawn to the mannequin in the 1950s Klan robe and hood. Smith says many black visitors ask if they can take pictures. The kids are just coming, they just stand in front of it. But I looked, and one lady was punching him out. One time, somebody had taken the belt, and they had it like they were hanging him. They just do negative things to him. I guess because of the negative things that it denotes. 5,000 people visited the museum last year. The majority were students from kindergarten through high school. Smith modifies her one-hour talk to suit the age group, but the message is the same. We've been a nation of immigrants. Everybody came looking for a better way of life, except one group, and that was the Africans. Everybody should be recognized for the work they did to make this nation such a great nation. This is Sally Watt at the Black Archives Museum in Tallahassee. It's all the falsehoods and misconceptions. Let that go. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week, and until then, join our daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. You can also visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Just a reminder that there's still time to register for our very special Florida Historical Society 2013 Annual Meeting and Symposium to be held aboard the Carnival Cruise Ship Sensation. The theme of the conference is 500 Years of La Florida, Sailing in the Path of Discovery. We'll be leaving from Port Canaveral on May 23rd, sailing to Nassau, Bahamas, and returning on May 26th, following the approximate route taken by Ponce de Leon when he named our state 500 years ago. To register, just go to myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.